0: know him? The best, best youth pastor in Andrews? Yeah? And uh, I was talking to Braden, He said something that was shocking. He said, um, we were just discussing Genesis, and he said, Genesis 15 is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And I was like, really? I, was like, I mean, I've never heard anybody say that before. And he was like, I love covenant theology. I was like, oh, well, I mean, as, we, as we've been studying through Genesis and as Brody went through this chapter last week, um, I understand that a little bit better, right? It, it, I have a new appreciation for Genesis and um, I'm going to let Kent Hughes uh, bring it all together for us um, from this monumental chapter leading into Genesis 16. So he says this and I quote, what a God and Savior we have. Abram's God is the God of creation, the God of the universe. He's the sovereign God who scripts history. He's the long-suffering God whose kindness reaches out today to the lost. He's the one who has extended history so that we might be born, so that we could be born again. Amen. He's the one who guides us through the suffering by which we enter the kingdom. He's the one upon whom the covenant curse fell so that we guilty ones who trust him might be heirs of the blessings. What a way to sum it up, right? That, that just makes me, like after I read that this week, I just stood in awe of like how amazing is our God. Right There's nobody like him. There's no one beside him. Like He's the only God, the only triune God. And so we can praise him, Father. We praise him, Son. We praise him, Holy Spirit, three in one. And so coming off the hills of the chapter we finished last week, we're going to see God. He, he has spoken. He's shown up. He's acted. He's assured, Abram, of his covenant promises. And we find him in Genesis 16 intervening. Now, before we dive into the text, I wanted to tell you a little story. Um, when I was at Appalachian, I was a history minor, all right? And I just, I loved history because I like to know what happened before we got here. We can learn from history, right? And, um, and then in seminary, if you ever go to seminary, then you learn a lot about history and about what's happened before you got there and, uh, and church history specifically, so, if you didn't know this, this is a little story about the church. Uh, Henry VIII was the king of England, and, uh, and he found himself in a love triangle. So, Henry's first wife was uh, Catherine of Aragon, a Spanish princess, and historians tell us that despite multiple miscarriages, stillbirths, and Hen- Henry's numerous affairs, Catherine was remain she remained a devout wife, right? But all that changed because Henry fell in love with Catherine's assistant, Anne Boline. But Anne didn't want to be one of Henry's temporary flings. And Henry seemed to love her, and so he sought to divorce Catherine and marry Anne. The Pope, however, of the Roman Catholic Church, refused to give Henry a divorce so that he could marry Anne. Therefore, King Henry broke off from Rome left the Roman Catholic Church, and created his own church, a new church that he could be the leader of so that he could call the shots and do what he wanted to do. Thus, the Anglican church was born so that Henry VIII could get a divorce and marry who he wanted to marry. So Catherine was heartbroken. Henry and Anne got married and had a baby who would become Queen Elizabeth I, and that's how a love triangle formed a new church. Right? People are really messy and very creative when it comes to our selfish endeavors of getting what we want and creating our own plans and doing what we want. Right? Now, we're not going to see a love triangle per se in Genesis 16, but this is the first marital triangle in the Bible. All right? This is a story filled with distrust, failing faith, selfishness, anger, abuse, jealousy, pride, hurt, and cruelty. And through it all, we will learn that humans plan and plot, but all of our planning and plotting does not bring about God's promises. God's plans are bigger, and his plans are better than man's plans. All right, so let's pray before we dive in to the text. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this word that we're about to explore together. I thank you that you saw fit to provide us with this narrative tonight because it exposes our hearts. We, we, we all in the room have been mistreated and we've all mistreated somebody else. We, we've all been quick to think about ourselves and, and to plan things and not think about you and your will and your way. And so we, we ask for your forgiveness in that. Lord, I pray that we would see things tonight that we've never seen before. I pray where there is confusion, you would bring clarity. Lord, I pray where there was a, a lack of faith, you would bring faith. And I pray that where we're, we're trying to live our lives in our own way, that you would turn our eyes to you, that we would trust you, that we would, we would realize that you are a God who knows us, who sees us, that you care for us, and that we would trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, look at the first verse, Genesis 16. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So there's four main characters in the narrative. You have Sarai, Abram, Hagar, and the Lord. Abram and Sarai most likely acquired Hagar while they were in Egypt. So it's important to note that not one person is portrayed in a good light here as an example for us to follow. This is one of those examples in in the Bible where we should be like, don't do that. Don't act like that in your marriage. Don't act like that in relationships. Don't treat people like this. In fact, these characters all serve as a warning for how we are not to act in our relationship with the Lord and in our relationship with each other. Because what's shockingly absent from this passage is that Abram, the man of faith, does not once go to the Lord in prayer, nor does his wife, coming right off the hills of of Genesis 15, where The Lord did some amazing things and showed up and and spoke to him. Not once does he go to the Lord and say, is this a good idea? What should we do? So in this narrative, we're going to see Sarah's unbridled passion, Hagar's pride, and Abram's passivity. All examples of how not to handle situations. Look at verse 2. Sarah said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. The promised child that God told Abram and reassured that he would have an heir hasn't come yet. So Sarai gets tired of waiting on the Lord and takes matters into her own hands. Anybody ever done that before? Now before we jump all over Sarai for being faithless, let's try to put ourselves in her shoes. Sarah, she's, she's married to Abram, who is a patriarch. The one God has chosen to be the father of nations, and she has not bore him any children. In that culture, she would be looked down upon. It was was like, man, children are a blessing from the Lord, and you don't have any. Are you cursed? In his commentary, Ross says, Sarai's solution to the problem of not having a child incorporated social customs of the day as a means of fulfilling the promise. Legal customs made it clear that a barren wife could give her maid to her husband as a wife and that a son born of that union could be the heir if the husband ever declared him to be so. And this, if you read out of the ancient Near Eastern law number 146 in Hammurabi's Code, this was like culturally acceptable. So it was, it was lawful for Abram and Sarah to get a child through Sarah's servant. But it wasn't wise. Right? Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Just because something's lawful doesn't mean it's the wisest thing to do. But the heart is the real issue here. We need to look at Sarah's heart. She had taken her eyes off of God's word. She'd taken her eyes off of God's promise, and she concocted her own plan. So she's demonstrating a lack of faith and patience. In his commentary, Matthew Henry said this, when our hearts are too much set upon any creature comfort, we are easily put upon the use of indirect methods for the obtaining of it. Inordinate desires commonly produce irregular endeavors. If our wishes be not kept in a submission of God's providence, our pursuits will scarcely be kept under the restraints of his precepts. So the desire to have a child is not bad. That's not a bad desire. The motivation behind why you want children should be considered. It was culturally shameful on Sarah to not have children. And it seems like she's not trusting the Lord, even though she knows who is the author of life. Because she said right here, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So, ironically, Sarah acknowledges God as the giver of children, but blames him for her situation instead of humbly trusting his plan and his timing. So, Sarah offers Hagar to Abram. How would Abram respond? Look at the end of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And all the women said? Nobody's saying amen. Huh. Just like that, Abram listens to the voice of his wife. Really? Really, Abram? You're not going to say anything? You're just going to listen to her? Is this the same man who led the 318 militia? Right? To, to victory? Brought his family back? This is the same man who we, we look to in faith, right? In bravery? Like, he's exemplary. Yet here, in this passage, he's not leading. Although women can be very persuasive, right? Abram doesn't do what wives most often, most often complain about. He just doesn't listen to me. Not Abram. You can't blame him for not listening, right? He, he listened to Sarah's voice even over the Lord's. Listening to your, your wife, listening to her voice in, in general, that's a good thing. But if she's trying to tell you to do something that is against God's word and his promise, then that's not a good thing. Pastor Paul Carter said, Abram is faith illustrated, but he is not faith perfected. He is faith real, but faith flawed. So here, He makes an unwise decision and doesn't trust the Lord and his timing. Look at verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So instead of believing in a miracle baby, they concoct this human plan. Y'all remember back in Genesis 12 when Abram gave up Sarai in Egypt and said, hey, she's my sister. They're going to kill me. Now, Sarah is giving Abram up to Hagar. Kent Hughes points out this very interesting parallel between this passage and Genesis 3. I thought this was fascinating. Listen to this. Sarai's action was parallel to that of Eve. Here, Abram listened to his wife, just as Adam listened to his. Here, Sarai took Hagar, just as Eve took the fruit. Here, Sarai gave Hagar to her husband, just as Eve gave the fruit to hers. And in both cases, the man willingly and knowingly partook. Isn't that amazing? Just in the garden, just like in the garden. They're sliding away. They're falling away from faith. They're not trusting God. They're not trusting his word. They're choosing to listen to themselves, and yet the whole time, God sees, and God knows what his creation is doing, so Hagar goes from servant of Sarai to wife of Abram, just like that, look at verse 4, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, so Hagar quickly becomes pregnant, can you say honeymoon baby, right, which changes everything, because now, Hagar knows she just did something that Sarah couldn't do. And so she flaunts her pregnancy around. Have you ever seen anybody flaunt a pregnancy? Like, they're just like... <laughs> you know? Like, like, can you see, like, Hagar doing that? Like, she's just like, hey, Sarah, look <laughs> at this. Like, she's, she's flaunting. So much so... that Sarah couldn't deal with it. She can't deal with it. It indicates maybe that Hagar didn't appreciate being treated like a birthing commodity instead of an individual. The word contempt in this passage means that she despised Sarai for what she made her do. In other words, Hagar looks with utter disgust at Sarai. Now, this love triangle is getting uglier and uglier. It's important to note that polygamy never works out well. There's not one positive example of pulling me in the Bible, because that's not God's plan for marriage. In verse 5, Sarah, said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So here, right, we have the age-old blame game. She is pointing And she's trying to turn it on Abram and say, this is your fault. Two points we need to look at. Number one, Hagar is disgusted with Sarai. Seems like Hagar was just following orders as an obedient servant and didn't want to get pregnant. And so she looks on Sarai with disdain. Number two, even though Sarai is blaming Abram, she's not wrong. It's ultimately Abram's fault. Just like it was ultimately Adam's fault in the garden. When the Lord comes, he doesn't immediately go to Eve or the serpent. He goes to Adam because it was the man's fault. So Abram, as the head of the household, had failed to lead his family well. He'd failed to love his wife well. And so while Abram is recorded as an example of faith leading to righteousness in Genesis 15, here in Genesis 16, we see why he's not the ultimate example because he falls short. Jesus doesn't act like this as the head. Jesus doesn't lead like this. Jesus would never treat his bride like this. Look at verse six. Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So Abram gives permission to Sarai to treat Hagar as she pleases, knowing that she's not going to treat her well. So they're both acting out of their flesh with with no sight or thought of the Lord in the matter. There's no confession, there's no repentance, there's no praying. So this is Abram in the poorest of light. He's not acting like a man. He's pathetic, he's passive, he's impotent, he's uncaring, unloving, unprotecting, and uncompassionate towards both Hagar and Sarai. Once again, the opposite of how Jesus treats his bride. So clearly the human solution to the childless patriarch brings much strife. But don't human plans always go that way? When we, when we try to force our, our will and our way, it ends up being not the best. Our stubborn, impatient will usually brings about more sin and pain rather than just listening and obeying God's word. So the tension is high, the scene is ugly in the house, and so H- Hagar has had enough and she runs away. What's going to happen next? Here is where the narrative takes a divine shift because the fourth and most important character enters the scene. Let's look at verse seven. We're going to see some divine intervention. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. I don't know if you write in your Bible, but I highlighted found her. The angel of the Lord found her. He found her. He took the initiative to find her. And he said, Hagar, Hagar, Servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. So we, we have to ask the question, who is the angel of the Lord? This is the first time we see this in the Bible, right? Now, there's a lot of different interpretations for it. Some say it's a pre-incarnate appearing of the Son of God. It doesn't say an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. So the definitive article, the, signifies that this is a unique being. Also, it's interesting to note that Hagar doesn't freak out. And she's not like trembling or falling on her face in fear. Isn't that a lot of the reactions that you see when you see an angel in the scriptures? It's important that the appearance of the angel of the Lord in the scriptures, we don't ever see another reference to that after Jesus is born. Just interesting. So, whether it was an angel or whether it was actually God himself, this is divine intervention. All right, Hagar has run away from Sarai, but she can't run away from the Lord. So there's a lesson for all of us here. We can't run away from our problems. We can't run away from the Lord. You can't run away from where you're supposed to be without God finding you. God intervenes in Hagar's life. And because of this, Hagar changes direction. We know she eventually turns around and goes back, which is a sign of repentance. So there's a massive theological implication for us just from this interaction between the angel of the Lord and Hagar. While Abram and Sarai don't know where Hagar is, the text says the Lord found her. She was never lost. He knew where she was all the time. So God sees God listens, and God calls her by name. This is huge. If you'll notice in all the verses we've read so far, Abram and Sarai never refer to Hagar by name. Every time they talk about her or to her, they say, my servant or your servant. How does the Lord call her? Hagar. He calls her by name. Why? Because he knows her. Right? It, that's, that's huge. That's huge. This is a reminder for all of us that Jesus does the opposite of what Abram did, right? He he treats her not like Abram treated her, not like Sarai treated her. Why? Because God knows who you are. God knows your name. He knows where you've been. He knows where you're going. He knows where you are right now. Just like Jesus knew the full story of the Samaritan woman at the well. That woman said in John 4 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? How did Jesus know? Because he is a God who sees, he's a God who knows, and he's a God who cares. Look with me at verse 9, where God gives Hagar a rebuke and instructions. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So these are not only instructions, like, but they are rebuke. This is not what you would expect to hear, right? Like, return to that awful, dysfunctional love triangle. Can you go back there? That's where you need to be. But God is a God of order, and he has a plan. While he called her by name, he also reminded her of her position, Right? He said, servant of Sarai. He called her her name first, and then he reminded her of her position, and he gives her a gentle rebuke. Return to where you're supposed to be. You left where you're supposed to be. So Sarai had authority over Hagar, and God calls Hagar to submit to that authority, to trust him, and to go back. So let's, let, let's not lose sight of the fact that God speaks. God speaks to Hagar, which is very merciful right? Because it's not like she's perfect in the scenario, okay? He doesn't send her back without hope and without a message. God promises to bless Hagar with a multitude of children, So this is not like the blessing that God gave Abram. This is not a a covenant. This is not a promise of salvation that would come through her line for all people and all nations. God is simply telling Hagar that he will multiply her descendants. And God's faithfulness is still seen today in that the Arab people remain strong and plenty to this day. So God continues to speak to Hagar. He gives her further instructions. Look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. So she just found out she's having a son. Huge. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against all of his kinsmen. So God tells her that she's having a son, which is significant. He also tells her what his name will be. Ishmael means God hears. So Hagar learns a lesson about God Almighty. He hears the cries of the afflicted. Are you distressed? Are you afflicted? Take heart. God hears you. God sees you. He's faithful even amidst man's schemes. So in verse 12, God tells Hagar what kind of a man Ishmael will be. He's going to be a social outcast, Hagar. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. Hughes says this in his commentary, the wild donkey is a desert animal that looks more like a horse than a donkey and is used in the Old Testament as a figure of an individualistic lifestyle untrammeled by social conventions. So he's not going to be able to fit in any box. He's going to push the envelope a lot. So out of conflict, he was born and he will have his hand in conflict all of his days. The Lord was clear that he would have tension and strife in his life. So Ishmael was a child of the flesh. Fast forward and contrast that with Isaac, who was a child of the promise, a miracle baby. So how in the world would Hagar respond to the angel of the Lord? Her response is very telling. Let's look, look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For, she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. So Hagar acknowledges the Lord And his word. She realizes God sees me, God knows me, God cares about me. If nobody else does, I know this to be true. So, this is life changing theological information. When we think of sight, right, we think about having the ability to see things in front of us. I can see you, right? I can see you, I can touch this. I can see where my feet are and where I need to walk so that I don't stumble and fall on my face. Yet when it says God sees, he's a God of seeing, it's not like our seeing. God is all seeing. Not like the all-seeing eye of Sauron. The ancients have said that God is all eye, meaning God sees all. Not just physical sight, but insight. He sees your heart. He sees your intentions. He sees all, and his seeing is his knowing. To use a big word, it means that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing because he is all-seeing. How different, I wonder, would our lives be if we remembered this truth about God? This one simple truth, if we remembered, how, how different would our decisions that we make be? How different would we react to our spouse? How different would we treat our siblings? Hagar acknowledges this in shocking contrast to Sarai that God sees, God knows. Hagar believes and expresses faith and obeys the voice of the Lord. How do we know this? Because she returns to Abram and Sarai. Before we see what happens when she returns, let's see how far she actually went. Look at verse 14. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahiroi, which means, which lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar was headed south. She's going towards Egypt where she was from and she almost made it there. She was an outcast and now she knew that her son would be an outcast. Beer Lahiroi means well of the living one who sees me. So, just because she just had this interaction with the Lord, she's going to obediently turn and go in the direction that she just ran from. You don't do that of your own accord, right? She had an interaction with the Lord. She heard the word of the Lord and she turned. She repented and she went back. Even if she didn't want to, she was being obedient. So Hagar learns That God sees, God hears, God knows, God cares, and God provides. God can be trusted, and so she returns. Look at verse 15 and 16. We'll see how the narrative concludes here. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Man, how many times did it say Abram and Hagar? is anybody missing? Sarai. The chapter opened with Sarai, but it doesn't end that way, right? They're eerily silent when it comes to Sarai. Despite her plan, she's still in the same situation that she was in at the beginning of the chapter, right? She's still barren. She still has a bad relationship with Hagar, probably not the greatest with Abram. What do we learn from these last two verses? That Abram was told by Hagar what the Lord said, and Abram listened to her, and he obeyed because he called his son Ishmael. And by naming his son, he's publicly acknowledging this is my son. But it's important to note that he was not the promised seed. Hagar would have a multitude of children, and Ishmael would be the father of 12 tribal rulers, but not one of them would be the promised seed of salvation. They'd actually end up fighting against God's people for thousands of years. So how in the world should we today in 2022 respond to this crazy story? What kind of application does it have for our lives? Well, one thing is that humans plan and plot, but all of our planning and plotting will not bring about God's promises because God doesn't need your help. God doesn't need my help. He's going to have his way because he rules and he reigns. And one of the biggest takeaways is that God's plans are not man's plans. And that we we should probably pray before we plan. Right? That's a good thing that we can learn from this text even though it's not in there. We learn a lot from its absence. We should pray before we plan. And we learn that God's plans are greater than our plans. They're higher than our plans. They're better than our plans every single time. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have to learn to trust God's will and ways above our own. We should take comfort like Hagar did in the fact that God sees us God hears us. God knows you. God knows your situation. A lot of times people don't pray because they think, well, it's just my prayers don't even reach the ceiling. When the, God hears you. This proves it. Even if Hagar wasn't praying on the way down, he heard her affliction. He heard her cries, right? And he intervened. He intervened in Hagar's life. And his intervention was monumental. Monumental. It changed the course and the direction of her life. God has also intervened in your life as well. The father uses his word to infiltrate our hearts and our souls. His son makes a way when there is no way. His spirit empowers and equips us to get through circumstances and situations when it seems like there's no way that we could get through this. There's no way that we could have peace in the midst of chaos. He provides. So this narrative... This narrative also serves as a massive, flashing, neon warning sign for believers. If you take matters into your own hands, if you plan, if you scheme, if you concoct your own way without first going to the Lord in prayer, there will be pain and consequences to pay beyond what you see and what you know. Even for thousands of years later, according to Abram and Sarah had no clue What would happen? Even today, because of their decision. So we can learn from Abram and Sarai's mistake here. So, a question that we could ask ourselves is are we thinking about taking a shortcut? Are you thinking about taking your own shortcut? Are you making plans right now without going to the Lord? Are you contemplating stepping off of God's clear directive and driving down the road of your own choosing? Pause. Like just 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 stop. Think and pray before you plan. That's very simple, right? Like right. stop. Think, pray before you plan. Because God will not be mocked. We'll will, we will all reap what we sow. You remember Ishmael means God hears. When we pray, when we cry out, God hears. Abram and Sarai would never forget the fact because his name reminded them every single time. May we not forget either. So given the recent world events with Russia and the Ukraine and our prayer focus tonight on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Ukraine, I thought that Alan Ross's summary of the message from Genesis 16 was pointed and relevant. Listen to this. In great distress, believers should pray to the Lord because he hears the afflicted. He hears them in their need, and he will miraculously fulfill his promises. Every time. He hears you in your affliction. He knows your need. He will fulfill his promises. So on this side of the cross, we know that God fulfills his promises because of Jesus' perfect life his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection. Jesus taught his disciples to pray and he modeled prayer for them. And he promised that he'd never leave them, he'd never forsake them. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to be the guarantee of that promise, that all of his promises would be fulfilled. So this week, let's be a people who pray more than we plan. Let's be a people who pray more than we complain, pray more than we concoct, scheme, talk. Let's be a people who pray more. You're going to get in your further Genesis resources this week in your email. You're going to get a very simple prayer and fasting guide because if you don't have no money to give to the church in Ukraine or what's going on there, guess what? You can still be involved. If you can't hop on an airplane and go over there, guess what? You can still be involved by praying and fasting. And If you're like, I don't know what fasting is. What are you talking about? It's a great question. Before you leave, on this table right here, back there on that trash can over there near that ice cream cooler, there are there are three <laughs> there, there are packets. They're, they're just a piece of paper, front and back. It's just a guide, a prayer and fasting guide, very simple, explaining what is fasting, why is it important, how should we do it, right? You're going to get some more resources in your email. But we as the people of God should be a praying and a fasting people one of the most important things that we could do. So the the lesson is clear for us all. No matter what age or stage of life, who would have thought in this story, no matter what age or stage of life that we could learn, God hears, God sees, God knows, God cares, God provides. So let's go to Him in prayer more readily. Be encouraged. For in God's word we hear his voice and through prayer we have his ear. May we not take those means of grace for granted. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for being true to your word. I thank you for being a God that is not only all powerful not only everywhere but You know us intimately. You're intimately involved in all of our ways. And all too often, you see us going away from your ways. God, I pray that we would pause, that we would stop, that we would hear from your word. We'd stop neglecting your word. We'd stop grieving your spirit. We'd stop scheming. We'd stop planning without first going to you and praying I thank you for being a God who hears I thank you for being a God who sees us you know who we are you know where we've been you know what we've done and yet you still call to us you still come to us you still intervene in our lives you've provided us not only with a Redeemer not only with a Savior but with your Spirit that dwells with us even now. I thank you for speaking tonight through your word. I thank you for the gift of your word. I pray that we would not neglect it, but I pray that we would share it with those in our sphere of influence. This week, I pray that we would be a praying church, that we would be a people who pray and who fast and know and trust that you are working, that your plan is greater than our plan, and that even through the midst of what's going on around the world, I'm reminded of the quote The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and that you will advance your church. I thank you so much that your plans are greater than ours. For that we would trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.